I was wondering if we'd still remember how to do Sunday school. We had a congregational meeting, and then we had Christmas, and then we had New Year's. So hopefully we can get our way back into this. I am going to ask for a volunteer to open in prayer, if I can. Otherwise, someone will get voluntold. Keenan Dirksen, can I ask you to open in prayer? Amen. All right, so you know what? In, in fairness, I maybe said this at the beginning, but as a historical note, I was reading up on this again yesterday about the history of some of these things. If you have the Westminster Confession, you'll know until the section on baptism, it's the exact same document. Exact, like not close, it's exactly the same document, other than. Uh, on baptism. This is just a baptistic version, and that was not plagiarism. That was a self-intentional design to say we're not wanting to be schismatic. We're not trying to break off and do our own thing. Here's what we have in common with the bigger church, and I think that's a template for us as well. None of us want to be schismatic. And that's fair, but I took the opportunity to give a history lesson. Yeah. You know I'm going to do that. All right. So we are on page 20, uh, chapter 5, section 7. So the very last section of chapter 5 is where we are up to now. And does everyone have a booklet? Tanya and me brought a few more booklets last weekend. So if anyone does not have a booklet, they are just at the back table there. So gladly grab one. And so we're still talking on the providence of God. In chapter 5, section 7 says, The providence of God in a general way includes all creatures, but in a special way it takes care of His church and arranges all things to its good. Okay, so that's a fairly self-explanatory summary statement here. Uh, So what, what is not under the providence of God? Oh, Nothing. Yes. Is there an atom in space anywhere right now that is moving around autonomously, apart from God's design? Nothing. Nothing at all. Okay. Are people acting in an autonomous way? No, they are not. Is gravity acting autonomously? No, it's not. And by autonomous, I just mean self-powered, self-ruled. Nothing is autonomous. Some things, certainly when God hardens things, as we uh, read about last time. When God hardens people, it looks as though they're acting autonomously, and certainly in their mind, they are uh, willing to act autonomously, Uh, and yet even that is under the providence of God, because at any moment, God could restrain that evil in their heart. Uh, So there is absolutely nothing, no event, no person, place, or thing that is acting independently from the providence of God. And this is good. Why is it good? 
according to the section. Why is that good, that nothing is acting autonomously? No one would be saved apart from the providence of God. That's right. And it says here it it includes all creatures, so that's certainly true. So right now, if there is a tiger that is pouncing on an impella somewhere in Africa, both of those creatures are doing exactly, uh, acting exactly according to the script that God wrote for those creatures. So it includes all things. But in a special way, it takes care of His church and arranges all things to its good. So this isn't, and again, this is what makes providence personal. This isn't just cold, hard fate. Uh, And frequently people, when they come across what the church has always confessed about the high providence of God, they confuse it with fatalism or determinism, which is just this cold, hard fate Okay? And so you run to the left of the ship, it's going to sink. You run to the right of the ship, it's going to sink. Or in the Greek uh, story, I think I might have mentioned it. Who's heard of the Greek story of Oedipus? Oedipus is a man who receives a prophecy, I think maybe from the Oracle of Delphi, uh, that he's going to end up marrying his own mother. And he's so repulsed by that prophecy that he makes it his life's mission to go away from that area so that this prophecy can't come true. Uh, And he's on this, well, it's a long story, but he ends up marrying his widowed mother, not knowing who she is, okay? That's Greek fatalism. No matter what you do, uh, the outcome is fixed, it's cold, it's impersonal. Uh, A high view of providence is not fatalism because God uses means, okay? It's personal. There's a reaping and sowing principle in the way God designs this story. So, yes, it's fixed in the sense of uh, God's decree isn't in flux, uh, but it's personal and it involves means. There's a reaping and sowing, so this isn't just cold, hard fate. And it says here that the purpose that God designs all this for, it doesn't say here, we've seen that previously, but it's for His own glory and for our good. And let's look at that a little bit further. Who wants to, uh, there's three texts here, we're going to hand them out. Who wants to take 1 Timothy 4.10? Howard's got that. Who wants to take Amos 9, 8, and 9? Dawn. And then who's got Isaiah 43? Evangeline. Okay. So let's turn to 1 Timothy 4, 10. Oh, yep. Okay, so does Paul see this view as a reason to lay back on the couch? God's sovereign, so there's nothing for me to do. Is that Paul's attitude? What's he doing? Yep, because God is sovereign, because God has set uh, his love on the church, because of that we toil and strive. Okay, reaping and sowing. Who wants to take Amos? Yes. Yes, especially those who believe. Okay, Uh, that's not exactly what we're looking at today, but I thought that question might come up. So, universalism. 
Okay? Does this teach a universal atonement, as in all people are saved? I'll throw that out there. Is that what's being taught here? Okay, good. All right, let's go on. Correct. Yeah, so sometimes the expression is used, <coughs> excuse me, that Christ's atonement is sufficient for all and efficient for the elect. Well, what does that mean? That means exactly what Alfred just said, is that if Christ, if God, had determined to save every last person, he, we know from Scripture he hasn't, but had that been his design was to save every last person, Christ's atonement would have looked no different. It would have looked exactly the same. It's sufficient for everyone. There's not a ratio of how many drops of blood per saved person. Right? So the atonement would have looked exactly the way it did. So it's sufficient for all in the sense that uh, the offer goes out to all. It's efficient, meaning it's effective only for the elect. Only those who come to faith in Jesus Christ have that atonement applied to them. And I was actually in an in a interesting conversation with someone kind of about this um, the other day talking about the conditionality of forgiveness. And again, this isn't a right or wrong question. This is an experience question, so I'll throw this out. Uh, who was taught, either explicitly or implicitly, and maybe got the idea... Uh, that Jesus died for everyone's sins in a kind of an effective way. I, I certainly grew up with that concept. Okay? Jesus died for every last sin. If that happened, what's the consequence? Every last sin is forgiven. Okay? Every last sin is forgiven. So who's in hell? Nobody. There is no hell. Okay? Jesus Christ did not effectively atone for every last sin. He atoned for every sin of every believing one. Okay? And the offer is free. The offer goes out to all. But the efficiency or the effectiveness is limited to those who come to Jesus, faith, or to Jesus Christ by faith. So when, it talks, when we come across these texts that are universal in scope, we shouldn't understand that Christ effectively Uh, has saved all people, or that his atonement effectually intercedes for all people, Uh, but Jesus does save all people. Well, how does that work? Well, did Jesus die for rich people? Did he die for black people? Mm -hmm. Did he die for Pakistanis? Did he die for Canadians? Norwegians? Ugandans? (laughs) Brazilians? Right, Jesus died for all people. His, universal, his atonement is universal in that sense. So another way of putting this, if this is helpful, is uh, Christ atones uh, for all without distinction, not for all without exception. So I'll say that again. Does that make sense? Christ's atonement uh, covers all without distinction, not all without exception. Okay? 
so it doesn't save every last person. It saves all kinds of people, rich and poor, male and female, light and dark, okay? All without distinction, God is no respecter of persons, but not all without exception, okay? So we don't have uh, universal salvation. And we do have the free offer of the gospel. We do not know who will and who will not come to the gospel, so we preach it liberally to everyone. And by liberally, I mean generously, not preaching a liberal gospel. That one will save nobody. Okay? Whoa, whoa, whoa. So are you telling me God died for more than Amen. Amen. And, and on that, sometimes people find this depressing. So God's in control of salvation. Okay, so, and then you think of through your unbelieving loved ones, and it becomes depressing. Uh, and I'd say exactly the opposite. Because what Alfred just said is true. If God was not in charge of salvation, who would be saved? Nobody. If this was just based on our free will, not a single person in history would ever be saved. Romans 8, 7, and 8 says that the heart set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law because it doesn't want to. It's not that God is keeping people from salvation. It's that people hate God. People loathe God from the, everything that's in them. We just reject Him. We want to live autonomously. We want to live for ourselves. We want to live for our own glory. So if all that God did was throw this offer out no one would be saved. But because grace is sovereign, because no Adam or no person is moving autonomously, can God save the hardest case in the Roman Empire, i.e. Saul of Tarsus? Wow. Saul can be saved? Okay, that means no one that you know who is hardened in their rejection of the gospel today is beyond the grace of God. So keep praying. Keep planting seeds. Okay? Some people on the other side of this would say, well, people have to show signs of repentance before you give them the gospel. Otherwise, you're just throwing pearls to swine. So you, you have some Christians in history that have uh, said, well, uh, if it's just throwing pearls to swine to share the gospel with everyone, uh, we need to see some kind of life, some kind of spiritual life uh, before we even start preaching the gospel. And I think the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, has a good answer for that. Uh, very evangelical man, he said, you know what, I preach the gospel to everybody. Uh, if, if I could tell who the saved ones were going to be, if there was people walking around in England with a yellow E stamped on their forehead for elect, I would go to those people and preach the gospel to them. <laughs> but God doesn't do that. We just don't know God's ways. So I preach the gospel to everyone, and after people come to faith in Jesus Christ, well then we'll know the Holy Spirit did a work on their heart. 
So we preach the gospel liberally. The free offer of the gospel is important. It has to go to every man, woman, and child. And we don't have control over who does and who doesn't believe, uh, but we plant in faith that God is doing this. Okay? That's related to providence, but that is, I was wondering if someone might catch that verse. Does that help, Yannicka? It was your question after all, so we should come back to you. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Now, let's see what Amos says. Who had Amos 9, 8 and 9? Okay, so who is God's redemptive gaze on there? Even in judgment, what's God doing? Keeping Jacob alive, right? Even in the midst of judgment, God is kind. He has his loving gaze set on his bride, on his people. Then lastly, who had Isaiah? Evangeline, you had Isaiah? Okay. What do you notice here? What kind of a trade is God making? Yeah. See, so God is preserving the interests of His people again. Okay, so what do we do with this, how do we make application to this? Um, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm going to go ahead and say that the last couple of years have been interesting, and it has come at no small harm to the church, speaking more broadly. And to put this in historical perspective, Christendom is 2,000 years old. The church in its present form, is 2,000 years old, and never once, never once in history has the whole church shut her mouth on Easter and Christmas, twice in a row. No singing. Okay? We need to feel how absolutely extreme and how radical that is, because far worse things have happened on earth than what's happened in the last two years. We've had world wars. We've had the Spanish flu. We've had many pandemics that were roughly on par with this last one. And never in history has the church across the globe said, we're going to mumble our way through Easter and Christmas. That has never happened. Okay? To just accept that is such an extreme position. 
Okay, and I know, given the current context, I'm the extreme one. I get that. But let's think about this from a historical perspective. This has never happened, ever. Who's extreme? Okay? Now, we all have our stories that have been painful and difficult. Is God in this? Okay? Is, is God turning a profit on this? Did the kingdom of God get snuffed out the last two years? No, God is turning a profit on this. Unfortunately, it sucks to be the people in God's stories sometimes, but here we are, okay? So, uh, we're in the story, let's turn a profit on it. Let's do something about it. And I would suggest if you're here this morning, you are doing something about it. You are turning a profit on the pain, okay? And we all have to. That's our job. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we do know we have to take whatever number of talents God has given us, and we need to turn a profit on it. Uh, for his glory, and for the benefit of the, tr- of the bride, okay? Hopefully everyone here is going to have grandkids one day. And do we want healthy churches for them? You bet we do. You bet we do, okay? So it's our job, if you want to bless your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, the people you won't even see, uh, you've got to turn a profit today. You've got to do something for them today. And we have ample evidence that this is how God works, okay? The circumstances are unprecedented, but that God uses difficult circumstances to turn a profit for the blessing of his people down the road. Hopefully, you've read your Bible enough times, you know that story's been told about a hundred times, okay? So, let's, let's know where we are in the story. And the doctrine of providence is very, very comforting for that. God will turn a profit on it. It's not that we hope he will. He will. We just don't know how. So, you just got to man your station and be faithful, but he will turn a profit on it. That much we know for sure. I'll stop there. Any further discussion on this? We've spent a few weeks on providence now. Any loose ends? Any leftover discussion? Comments? Good to move on? All right. Then let's turn the page. Page 21, chapter 6, section 1. Uh, and this deals with the fall of man, sin, and punishment. Okay, so God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit his act because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. Okay, before we jump into the text here, discussion on this. Straightforward? Complicated? Do we understand what it's saying? Okay. So, God created humanity upright and perfect. So far, so good. Okay. Was that a stable position? Okay. It was not. Okay. Uncorrupted does not mean uncorruptible. So, Adam and Eve were uncorrupted, they were pure. But were they uncorruptible? 
Were they stable in that position? No, they were not stable in that position. So the vase is still sitting on the table, but it's wobbling. <laughs> okay? So they're in a period of probation, a period of testing that God gives them. And remember, we've discussed this before. We won't do a deep dive on it today. There's actually two trees in the garden. One is the knowledge of good and evil, and the other one is the tree of life. Uh, and after they sin by taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God lovingly kicks them out of the garden and protects the tree of life with angels, with swords, so they cannot finalize their position of death. Okay? So they failed their probation. They failed their test. Had they then moved on to the tree of life, their, their position would have become irreversible. Okay? Because it, the tree of life stamps the eternal state. And that's why we don't see that garden again, or we don't see that tree again till where? Revelation. That tree didn't disappear. That tree is back at the streams of living water in the new created heavens and earth. Okay? Now we graduate to the tree of life. Now we make our position of eternal life irreversible. Okay? Now we, uh, God has wrestled with his people long enough. Now we've graduated onto that final step. Okay? So it's a grace that God kicked our parents out of the garden after they failed their probation. And he threatened death if they broke it. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Who wants to take that? Who's got Genesis 2? Jolyn? Okay. Who wants to take Genesis 3? Tim? And who wants to take 2 Corinthians? I'm going to ask Caleb Hamstra if he'll take it. All right. So, on footnote 1 here, this threatened death if they take it. Whoever had Genesis 2, please read that now. Okay. Let's stop there for a second. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And they go on to have children. Did Adam and Eve die that day? Yeah, they did. Okay, they didn't die physical death, but what is death? What's death? Separation. Separation. Yeah, death is not annihilation. Okay, and we've talked about that here too. There's a, it's becoming, fast becoming the majority report, if it isn't already, uh, that hell is annihilation. Even in our evangelical circles, this thing is picking up speed. That's a Greek concept, though, that death just means you're just vaporized and nothing is left. That's not the Christian conception. The Christian conception is that death is this unnatural separation of body and soul. Okay? The Christian hope is not a far side cartoon where we're in this floaty place. The Christian hope is resurrection. Resurrection. Body and soul married back together. That's why we don't burn people when they die. That's why we put them in the ground facing east. Because the sun is going to rise one final time and those bodies come out and are rejoined with their soul. Okay? That's why, this is how you can track the spread of Christianity through history is graveyards. Okay? 
People in the east did sky burials. Some guy's job was to take a dead body up on top of a mountain, hack it to pieces with a machete, and then stay there and watch till the crows cleaned it up so that there wasn't disease down at the camp. Okay? Some people fed bodies to sharks. Pagans would burn bodies. Okay? And we're not saying with that that if someone gets burnt in a house fire or they die at sea that God can't resurrect that body. Of course, that's not what we're saying. But symbolically, for those of us who are left behind... Putting an intact body in the ground like a seed, a la 1 Corinthians 15, facing east, looking forward to the rising sun, symbolizes properly the Christian hope. That body is coming out of the ground again. How does it look? I don't know. We also know from 1 Corinthians 15 that there's continuity and discontinuity. It's the same Jesus who walks out of the tomb as who went in there, but for a period he was unrecognizable. Okay, so clearly there's something the same and something different. He's the first fruit. There's no reason to think our resurrection is different than his. Uh, but that is death. Death is that weird, unnatural place where the body and the soul have been separated. Okay, that's our loved ones who have died. That's this unnatural state. Death wasn't part of creation. It's a corruption. Okay, that's death. So did Adam and Eve die that day? Well, in terms of their separation from God, yes, they did. And it set the wheels in motion for physical death. Adam and Eve, and if you think closely, your body was designed to work forever. Okay? Your body is designed to be a perpetual motion machine. That's why scientists who are in search of perpetual motion, they're onto something. The reason we don't have it is because creation has fallen. There's entropy. Things don't work. Okay? Energy gets lost through heat and through sound and, and all this. But it should work. It should work. This body should live without any corruption forever because it was designed to. And the reason it doesn't is because sin is killing it slowly. Okay? So did Adam and Eve die that day? Yes, they did. Yet, they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. How long did Adam and Eve make it? I'll give you a hint. There's not an answer in the Bible. All we have is varying degrees of educated guesses. How long did they make it, do we think? Five. <laughs> there weren't any kids born, and so here's my theory as a man, is that he didn't leave that woman alone for very long, so it for sure happened inside of nine months, <laughs> Okay. Because this baby was born on the other side of the fall. Okay? Um, there is a tradition. That, there's not chapter and verse for this, so let's hold it loosely. Uh, there is a tradition that it happened on the eighth day. Creation is made in six. God rested on seven. Day one of the new week, Adam falls. And the reason for that is, one, because it seems like it happens very quickly. Secondly, because typologically it's fitting with Christ rising from the dead on the eighth day. Man fell on the eighth day. Christ rose on the eighth day. 
Take that for what it's worth. That's not an article of faith by any stretch. It's an educated guess. But it certainly was not long. Okay? Does anyone also notice the inverted nature of what's happening here? Let's read Genesis 3. Okay, what's wrong with this picture? Blame? Yeah. Blame, for sure. And is the blame even flowing in the right direction? The blame itself is upside down. Okay, no one should blame, but it would make sense if a serpent blamed one higher up, the woman, and then the woman could blame her higher up, the man. But now you have people in greater authority blaming people beneath them. That makes no sense. The man blames the woman? Well, what kind of a man are you? Your job was to grab a shovel and beat that snake on the head when it approached your wife. (laughs) You want to share that? (laughs) No, (laughs) beat Well, then, had he done that, then we know for sure the fall's in motion. Yeah. No, he shouldn't have beat Eve with the shovel, but he should have beat the snake with the shovel. See how this works? The blame is completely upside down. The man should have prevented this. He was there. He was listening into this conversation. He was close by, and he failed to protect his woman. He failed in his manhood. He sinned in his masculinity. He sinned against his own gender and for the reason God made him. And then the woman who was created to have dominion alongside her husband and be a helper, who does she listen to? A lower down, an inferior. Okay, She takes instructions from him rather than bringing herself to the protection of her husband. He's already failed. Maybe she could remedy the situation by going to her husband rather than listening to the serpent. Yep. Yes, and Adam blames God. So this whole thing <laughs> is backwards, right? And Adam, and men still do this. Um, it's not politically correct in our culture to generalize based on gender, but here I go. Um, I think men still tend to have the same sin. Men tend to be lazy, and men tend to blame shift. Okay? It's rarely a man's fault that something bad happens. It's this woman you gave me. Okay? And what does he do? He plays a game that we still play today as a victim game. Right? Really, this, the, the buck all falls on the man, and what's he doing? He's saying, essentially, I'm the victim in this. Right? There's the serpent, and there's this woman, and God, you made all of it. Like, I have some sympathy. I'm the victim in this. And God says, no, no, the buck stops with you. You're the one who should have put this all to death the minute it started to unravel, and he failed to. So lots of blame. It's upside down. God creates man to have dominion over creation, gives a woman to help, and then puts all the things under their feet. And now we have the lowest of the low that crawls on the ground. It doesn't even have feet. Okay, The lowest of creation taking dominion over the woman 
taking dominion over the man in defiance of God. The whole thing has been turned upside down. It's all backwards. And if there's a besetting sin among men, there's also one among women that gets laid out in this curse. Do you know of any women that have a hard time following their husband's leadership? Okay, that's also part of the curse. Okay, God promised feminism would happen. Your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. And he's not going to do a particularly good job of it. So you're actually going to actually kind of have a case when you complain about men. But that doesn't make it okay. Okay? God promised misogyny and he promised feminism and it's all from the pit. Okay? Christian marriage pushes back against this. <clears throat> and I'll stop there. Let's keep moving. Does that... Can you see how many things have gone wrong in the fall? This isn't just merely grabbing a piece of fruit. Everything is falling apart. Okay? The wheels have come off this whole project. It's everywhere. And in terms of contemporary application, can we actually see um, why misguided young men who are sick of feminism find Andrew Tate to be a compelling figure? Is that okay? No, it's not okay. He's an unbeliever. He's a pagan. He's lost. Okay? But they're reaching out against something. Okay? Is it understandable why young women go to university and their feminist sociology instructor tells them everything about the patriarchy that they need to reject? And all of a sudden there's all kinds of trauma in their life? Okay? This makes sense in a fallen world. We blame shift. Okay? We just do. And blaming other people for our problems isn't the way out. The blood of Jesus Christ is the way out. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, pardon me, 2 Corinthians 11. Okay. So, Again, maybe we should have read this first. Can we see that we're still living under the same curse as our first parents? Do we still find ungodly ideas to be compelling and interesting? Okay, and good thing they never make it into the church, right? Because we're Christians, so we don't fall for bad ideas, right? Right? <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> Throw me some hope, Okay. How does this work? Again, let's make application. If Paul's saying this can happen in the Corinthian church, let's make application to our own times. How do we swallow bad ideas today, even as Christians, even as genuine Christians, people who are going to heaven when they die? How do we get deceived with bad ideas? Yeah, and he, he, he promises us something, right? Yep, he's cunning. Yeah. Did everyone hear what Inga said? He, he already has the world, the church, it makes sense that he'd target the church in a special way, right? We're the lighthouse, okay? If he can destroy that, boy, oh boy. Got it easy. He won't destroy it, but that's his aim. How else do we fall for bad ideas? 
It's our sinful nature. Yeah, we're naturally attracted to it. Yep. Yeah, and I'll, I'll make application um, to a couple things. This is great. There's interaction. We have people who want to learn the Bible, learn Christian doctrine, learn about the church. This is all wonderful. But here's something that's happening is we've got an hour for this and then a 45-minute sermon, which is wonderful. We're commanded to do that, okay? And then we give our kids to Caesar for eight hours a day, five days a week, okay? So Jesus has them for two hours. Caesar has them for 40 hours. And then add screen time onto that. Boy, oh boy. Okay? We've been talking about this at men's night, and I will just suggest to you, and I mean this from the pit of my heart, education is warfare. And worship is warfare. We become like what we worship. Okay? So when we're worshiping God, we're not just exuding emotions. We are grabbing a battering ram and swinging at the gates of hell. It's warfare when God's people gather for worship. Okay? It is an act of war. That's why men need to sing. I read recently, two of the signs of a healthy church are that there's babies making noise and distracting everybody, and the men are singing. Okay, I'm not a great singer, but if men are singing, they are singing. Men are involved in this war. We're not outsourcing it to our women like our first father did. Okay? We're laying hold of this. We're swinging the battering ram. We're teaching our little babies that are crying in the background uh, that King Jesus wins this thing, and you better grab a hold too. Okay? And then we educate our kids. And I'm not saying there's a one-size-fits-all. But let's be realistic about how potent coloring pictures of Noah's Ark is versus 40 hours a week of education coming from a standpoint that hates God. It says it's neutral, but it's not. Because the beginning of every class is God is irrelevant to everything we're going to study in chemistry. God is irrelevant to everything we're going to learn in math. Okay? Education is warfare. And however you educate your kids, I'm not going to be too specific on one size fits all, this has to happen at the home. Okay? Sunday school is great. Youth is great. It's all wonderful. But it's, it's not a replacement for what needs to happen at home. It's a supplement for what needs to happen at home. We have to teach our kids that this is important. Okay? And it's not just one part of life. Christ is the controlling figure that covers everything. Okay? So when we learn about chemistry, we're actually learning about how Jesus rules the universe. When we're learning about math or logic or philosophy, what we're learning about is how the mind of God operates. What is it that Jesus Christ is the logos? The integrating principle that makes sense of everything. When we're studying history, we're not just remembering dates and names. We're learning how God's providence actually has worked in history for the benefit and the good of his people. That's what we're doing. Okay? And very few of my teachers were able to teach from that perspective, probably because they didn't know. But we know, so we need to at least be doing this at minimum uh, at home. I'll stop there. We've discussed the fall, we've discussed providence, um, we've discussed death now. And again, it's come through lots, but can you see how important it is to actually get the doctrine of sin the doctrine of the fall, how important it is to get this right? Okay? If people are neutral and fixable, if people are basically good and they need some coaching to get them all the way home, 
uh, we're going to end up with a very different gospel than if man has fallen and a rebel hater of God who needs a gospel to revive him. Okay? So this is important that we get this right. This isn't just to be negative. This is to set us up for a glorious gospel which raises sinners to life. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for each one here. Lord, I want to thank you for what you're doing in our midst. The way you are clearly showing your determination to turn a profit on difficult circumstances and on painful situations. Lord, and even on our personal disappointment, on our personal loss, on our personal hurt. Lord, and when we don't see that, I pray that you would give us a reminder of how you are at work. You are moving all things together for our good and for your glory. Lord, help us to remember that when we're at particularly difficult points in the story, that we are not yet in the last chapter. Lord, send an extra dose of your Spirit to help us to persevere, to help us to soldier on in a happy, glad, joyful way, knowing that we are on your side and your kingdom will prevail. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we fellowship, as we sing, as we pray, as we hear Aaron preaching from your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would feed us, build us up, strengthen us, put into our hands the things that we need for the days and for the week that lies ahead of us. I pray that we would love each other well. I pray that our commitment to you would show up in the way we love each other, in the way we uh, interact with each other, that you would be praised and we would be strengthened. And we commit this all into your kind and fatherly hands. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.